Thanks again, worship team, for leading us in, in worship. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 12. And, and uh, as, as we go there, just to remind you that we're in the 11th hour. And what do we mean when we say that? We, when we're talking about the 11th hour, we're talking about how we are in the last moment. When you say it's the, the 11th hour, it means time is ticking. And, and we're looking at the last moments of history in the book of Revelation. So far in chapter 1, we looked at the, uh, the vision that John had of the Son of Man where Jesus visits him and from amongst the seven lampstands and he had seven stars in his hands and those represented the angels to the seven churches. And with those, he sent a letter to each of those churches. And today we're going to look at the third of those letters. Uh, just to keep in mind that uh, 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 where, where we're looking at, we're, actually, um, this is the wrong presentation. So uh, this is the Church of Smyrna. So if we could get, uh, this is from last week. So um, it's, it should be uh, marked Revelations 2, 12 through 17. So uh, while they we're working with that, we can go without a presentation, right? So uh, uh, because really all that matters is that we're talking from the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God. So you have your... your uh, your scriptures with you today, right? But we'll walk through these, uh, the seven, uh, or the six steps that we find in all of these, these letters. We have, uh, it starts with a destination where it, starts, it says to the angel of the church of, and it names the church. Then we have the description of Jesus Christ, where it always begins with these things, says he, who, and it gives a description of Jesus Christ. Then a description of the church that begins with, I know your works. And then he gives us the, the directives, and then he always closes with the discernment of the reader and the depiction of the consequences. To him who overcomes, this is what will happen. And we're going to see that once again today. If you could read with me, following along, starting in verse 12 of chapter 2, we read this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the, in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Wow, what a letter, right? And, and uh, this letter to the church of Pergamos. And, and so well, let's begin by looking at the, uh, the destination. I, hey, we have it up here. So awesome. I didn't even look. I just was looking down here. So if we look at the, uh, the destination here, we're uh, looking at Pergamos. And some of your translations, it might say Pergamum. It's the same, uh, it's the same name. Uh, but you'll see it there toward the, the north end of Asia Minor. Um, it's about 55 miles north, northeast of Smyrna. This is the first inland uh, city that we've been, been talking about. The word Pergamos actually means citadel. And, uh, and I think that's 
interesting in light of the Satan's throne comment that we find in here. But what you find when you look at the, the uh, culture of Pergamos in that day is that it was a center of pagan cults and emperor worship. Uh, it was known for its, its great library. And for those who are geeks like me who, who study textual criticism and all that kind of stuff, this was the second largest library in the world at the time, second only to the library in, the library in Alexandria. So this was a huge uh, library. People would come from all over the world to read about various cults and various religions and various versions of history as well. And, uh, and in fact, they became the leader the leaders of parchment, of the making and uh, production and sell, uh, sale, selling of parchment. In fact, the word parchment comes from the word Pergamos um, as well. So that's the, the, the city there. But look at the description of Jesus Christ in verse 12. We read this um, in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So there's only one description of Jesus here. There's, he only gives one description of himself, and that description is that he has the sharp, two-edged sword. Uh, now again, this goes back to the vision that we saw of Jesus in chapter 1, where uh, the, the vision of the Son of Man, uh, in fact, in verse 16 of chapter 1 we read, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Uh, so th this represented the divine weight of his words. Hebrews uh, says that the word of God is sharp, like a two-edged sword. And you have this divine, the divine weight of his words, the, the authority in his judgments. He is the, it's two-edged in the sense that it, it, it separates life from death. It separates believers from uh, from the world, it separates sinners from God. It, his word carries all of that weight. He is that, that double-edged sword coming right from his own mouth. The idea behind it is that Jesus is the final authority. Imagine this. He is the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner all in one. When he speaks, there's no one else to appeal to higher than him, Right? And so when he says something, that, that his word is final, and there's nothing else beyond that. In fact, if you keep a finger here, and you skip to, towards the end uh, of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 15, this is what we read. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty God. Very strong, isn't it? In fact, a few verses later, he says, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. This is kind of, that's PG-13, right? I mean, this is, this is you, you get the, the picture of the wrath of, of God being, uh, being revealed in a, in a very scary way, and it all comes from that sword of his mouth, and that's how he describes himself right here in, in chapter 2. And we, so we see that. But here's a quote from Alan Johnson in his commentary uh, on, on, on uh, uh, this passage, and he wrote this. He said, It is interesting that Pergamum was a city to which Rome had given the rare power of capital punishment, I was glad, which was symbolized by the sword. So just to catch the idea, 
this city was had enough of an emperor worship that they look, they gave it a, something that really only those in the, the inside of Rome had this ability, and that was they gave them the right over life and death, over capital punishment, and uh, and the symbol of that right over their city was the symbol of a sword. And so then now Jesus comes along and says he has the sword of his mouth. He goes on to say uh, in the in his commentary he says the Christians in Pergamum were thus reminded that though they lived under the rule of an almost unlimited imperium. They were citizens of another kingdom, that of him who needs no other sword than that of his mouth. Interesting, isn't it? And you see, you see the power of Jesus in here. They were living under the sword, but that's not the sword they needed to be afraid of. Right? There was a, a, another sword that is more important, in a, and that, that's the, the one that carries the real weight. And so that's how Jesus describes himself. And it makes you wonder, when Jesus describes himself this way, makes you wonder what he's going to have to say about the church, doesn't it? Because we've noticed so far, every time that Jesus gives a description of himself, that description of himself is very relevant to what he has to say to the church. This is his description of himself, so, so let's see what his description of the church is going to be. Let's look at verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, when we look at the description of the church, Jesus is going to have something positive to say. He's going to have something negative to say. This is, this is focusing on the positive. This is the, the positive thing. And he's saying to them, they were faithful to the name of Jesus even though they lived in a satanic stronghold. So even though they lived in, in this stronghold of Satan, they, they held fast to that name of Jesus. And he says I, he, he wants to con, condone that. Uh, and, and, and he's proud of them for that. And um, in fact, I want to focus on a couple of things in that, in that sentence. Uh, it says, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Uh, we have to go to extra biblical sources to find this out. But... Um, we read that he was actually a medical doctor and a dentist who used his practice. He saw a lot of people. He would use his practice as an occasion to propagate the truth, and he would tell people about Christ, and many people came to Christ through that. So he was accused of disloyalty to Caesar, and he was enclosed into a copper bowl, if you can imagine that. Not a bowl, a bowl, right? Um, and he was enclosed into this copper bowl, which was placed over a large fire, and he was burned to death alive inside that copper bowl. And yet, with that going on, he's saying the church was faithful to the name of Jesus. If you go back just a little bit earlier in the verse, it said the, that he knows where they dwelt, where Satan's throne is. That's quite a statement. I mean... To say, basically, this is where Satan's throne is. This is like the, the worst of the worst places, right? This is, this is where all of Satan's work is done. And so there's a lot of uh, speculation as to what, he would be, uh, to what he would be referring. One would be um, uh, a couple of different options. One is the Esculapium, which is a complex of buildings devoted to the local god, the, the god of healing, right? So they had multiple buildings dedicated to this, and it was a prominent thing inside uh, the, the city of Pergamum. Others would say, I mean, you, you would see this coming right in, is the altar of Zeus, was, which was very prominent in the city. So as soon as you start walking into uh, the, the city, you would see this altar to Zeus. 
So maybe that's the reference there as far as the, uh, uh, the, the throne of Satan. Others would say it's the, the temple of Augustus and the, the goddess Roma as well, which is part of the system of emperor worship. And uh, the, the Bible doesn't say spe specifically which it is, but the fact that all three of those existed in one location tells you something, doesn't it? That this was a center of, of all sorts of pagan belief. And I think the bottom line is, the point is, is that all of these are Satan's dominion, aren't they? All of these are part of Satan's dominion. Any, anything that takes our worship off of God and puts it onto anything or anyone else is satanic. Right? I think a lot of times in our minds we think, well, there, there's a, a list of religions. We're just the top religion, and then there's other religions that are pretty good, and, and you could work your way down to the really bad religions down here. And, and No, the way it works is there is one religion, not one denomination. There's one religion, if you want to call it that. There's a relationship with God that he has, he has given to us through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and then there's everything else is in a completely different category. The same category. Right? And they are all under Satan's dominion. Anything that takes your worship off of God. In fact, if you were to read the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, uh, you know what he, he says in there? It's, it's, he doesn't want you to worship anyone else. You don't have to worship Satan. You don't have to do it. You only have to worship one person. You know who that is? Yourself. Right? They're the most sacred day, according to the Satanic Bible, is not... Uh, is, is not some All Hallows Eve or anything like that. It's your birthday. Right? Second is Christmas, believe it or not, <laughs> according to the Satanic Bible. Why? Because this is so, there's so much selfishness that you see taking place at Christmas as well um, in a lot of people's lives. And, and, you, and you look, it's all about yourself. Anything that takes, you, takes worship off of God and puts it onto you or onto anyone else is Satanic. And this was was Satan's throne, right? He had, him, he had him by their local gods. He had him by, the, the, by Zeus and the Roman gods. He had the, 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 the emperor worship. He had him in all of those forms. And he was very happy with his work there in Pergamon. And yet, they held closely to the name of Jesus. Amongst all this, they were faithful to the name of Jesus. And so Jesus tells him, and he appreciates that. He says, that's a positive thing. You're faithful to the name of Jesus Christ. But he did have something negative to say to the church of Pergamos as well. So let's read verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate, which thing I, I hate. So when you, when you look at this, you see that there's a, a, a positive thing and a negative thing. The negative thing is, is that they permitted false doctrine. And I put that in the, the top of the box because those who are following along in the notes, save some space because I want to expand on what that doctrine is a little bit. Uh, but they, they, they permitted false doctrine. There are two false doctrines that are mentioned here. The first one being the doctrine of Balaam. What does it say? It says that they ate things sacrificed to idols and that they committed sexual, they were tempted to commit sexual immorality. So two things. Number one, they participated in pagan worship. And number two, they, were, they permitted sexual immorality. 
That was the doctrine of Balaam. And that goes back to the Old Testament story of, uh, of Balaam and Balak and, and where they, they, used, um, they used sexual immorality as a temptation because they knew that if they could tempt the Israelites to disobey God's laws sexually, that, they would, that God would withdraw his hand of blessing and then the enemies could win. That was the theory. And it was a smart theory. Not a wise one, but a smart one. The second doctrine that we see is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, this is not the first time we've heard that. If you've been following along in the series, we've actually heard this already in the first church, right? In the church of Ephesus, we were talking about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And once again, it's reference to the fact that he hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in the first letter of, uh, uh, as well. So we look at the... the, the the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and what do we know? And you might remember a couple weeks ago uh, when Irenaeus, who, was, uh, who lived during the second century, wrote this about the Nicolaitans. He said, the Nicolaitans lived without restraint in their indulgence of the flesh and practiced fornication and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So when you put this together, what's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? It's participating in, in pagan worship, and it's also permitting sexual immorality. So does that sound familiar? That's the doctrine of Balaam as well. So you have, you have the same actions coming from two different doctrines and, 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 and they're working towards this participation in pagan stuff as well as, as permission. They permitted sexual immorality. And so the idea there of, of Pergamus, and if we even take a step back and realize that he's writing these letters to the churches, which means that he's saying there are churches like that today. The idea is that there are churches that have allowed enough doctrinal impurity into the church that a congregant can feel comfortable, justified, and even proud of his sin. You think, how can that happen? To where a person would, would understand the gospel and then be proud of their sin. How does that happen? Well, it happened in Pergamos. It happened there. And, and they were actually to that point. You know, this is not new to Pergamos. In fact, you can go back to the book of Romans when Paul was talking about this. Look at what he said in Romans 6, 1 and 2. You can keep your finger in, in, uh, in Revelation 2. But in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Uh, do you see the error of the thinking here? There, it goes like this. It begins by saying, okay, all sin separates us from God. Is that true or false? It's true. All sin separates us from God, uh, whether it's a big sin in our eyes or a small sin in our eyes, right? All sin separates us from God. Jesus paid the price for all of our sin, right? Every sin you've ever done, every sin you ever will do, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Well, then, so if we sin more then we're just going to experience more of God's grace. You see where this is going? Now, if you experience more of God's grace by sinning more, then why not just sin more and appreciate God's grace? Right? I can't tell you, if, if I had to go back to the last time I heard someone who claimed to be a Christian tell me, I know this is sin, but we're under God's grace. I would have to go back days. Right? Why? I hear that all the time. 
Right? That's not what he's saying. That's, and, and, that, and, and Paul says, certainly not. Actually, in Greek, it's u may. U is a form of not, may is a form of not. It's like a double knot. Not like the kind you tie your shoes, but a double, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, it's an emphatic no. Absolutely not. If you really believe that sin is bad, if you really believe it, then you're going to want to avoid it. There's, there's going to be something in you that's going to make you want to annoy it. So if you, or, or avoid it. So if you believe that the path of sin is going to lead you to greater joy, then you're not really a believer, right? It doesn't make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense. In fact, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, because the Corinthians were definitely guilty of this same thing. He said in 1 Corinthians 5, we read this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? What's his point? He's saying... At this point, you are proud of your acceptance of sin. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's the doctrine of Balaam. You're proud of, of, of sin because you can say, oh, we love people so much that we can, uh, we can uh, uh, allow them in. But you know what? It's, it, there's, there should be something internal, something inside of us that does, not, that does not let us desire to go after, to go after sin. But this kind of thinking is almost like a, how much can I get away with? Because I really believe that the world's way is the better way. But I don't want to the, the go to hell, so I'm going to do, the, the, do the, the, the bare minimum. That is the wrong thinking, isn't it? That is the wrong thinking. Uh, some of you know that, that there's a group of, of us in this church, and, and we like to find really difficult obstacle course races, right? And we'll, you know, the next big one that we're doing is uh, the Tough Mudder. And uh, they're, they're, I've looked at the rules. There's nothing in there that says you have to exercise this many times a week. Nothing in there. There's nothing in there that says you have to, to cut certain things out of your diet. Right? Nothing, there's nothing in there on any of that. Um, but does that mean that we should just say, okay, well, I'll just stay home, sit on the couch, drink Dr. Pepper, and eat those little small powdered donuts that Sam's Club has? You know? <laughs> Until the day of the, of the race. That would be a bad idea, right? Right, why? Because there's something, and Monica can, can attest to this, there is something inside of us when, when there's a transformation, when there's a desire to do something like this, I can't explain it, it's crazy, but uh, we, we want to actually put ourselves through this torture, and, we, and, we, and there's something inside that gets you up when you, and you go and you, you run and you avoid those things, and I don't do it so well all the time, but I do when I know the race is coming. Yep, yesterday I was reminded because I, I had already eaten dessert and then we decided to go out to eat and then they had those chocolate chip cookies made in a, in a, in a griddle and a, with ice cream and so I ate dessert again. Oh man, I was not feeling good for the rest of the night. I reminded myself, why did I do that, right? And so just as there's, there's something, instead of this outward pressure to live the Christian life, there's an inward pressure, that something that says, no, we, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you want to become like Him. That's what Paul is saying. You, you can't do that. There's also an inward repulsion towards sin. My, my wife tells a story. I didn't ask permission to share this, but um, sorry. But she shares a story of one time when she was in college, I believe. She can correct the details. Uh, but 
she had some Chinese food that was bad. And she was, she got really sick, regurgitating a lot, right? You know, you know the story. And, and, and it was so bad that she went to the store even like in your, in your pajamas, right? Is that right? Yep. Went to the store in pajamas, just, I need Pepto-Bismol, right? Um, well, then the next time that she was asked to have the Chinese food or the whatever kind it was, you remember what kind it was? Yeah, uh, she, she doesn't remember the, exactly which dish it was, but for a lo- the longest period of time, she could not eat that same dish. She had this taste aversion, right? Has anyone ever felt something like that? Right? Uh, not all Chinese food, right? But, uh, but you've, you've got that taste aversion to something, to where something, and just the thought of it is like, ugh. Right? For me, that's kui. If you've ever had kui, it's guinea pig. Dainaku. And... Uh, yeah, yeah. You guys have taste aversion, you've never even tried it. So you know. <laughs> Wait till you know you're going to offend them if you don't eat it. And then you, oh, it's terrible. Well, uh, so you have that inward aversion. That should be how we feel about sin. Right? That should be how we feel about sin, too. And, and he's saying, and Paul is saying, no, that's not what. The idea that shall we continue in sin so that we can experience God's grace. It makes no sense. That's kind of like saying, I'm going to continue eating kui because I've got a place to throw it up, right? I mean, I can do that. It makes no sense. Sorry, I'm getting a little gross here. Let's continue on. All right. The idea here is that the, the, the church in Pergamos ignored that doctrine, right? They ignored it, and they would have been proud of their tolerance of a man who was caught in sexual immorality. And so I, I think if we were to expand on that definition of the negative, not, not just that, that they permitted false doctrine, but that they permitted the doctrine of abuse of God's grace by permitting sin when they should have been prohibiting the sin. And they're permitting it instead of prohibiting it. I think, too, that Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans here because he wants us to contrast this to what we had just read two churches earlier in Ephesus. You remember in Ephesus, what was the issue? They hated the Nicolaitans. They knew they draw, they would call sin, sin, and they were proud of that. What was their failure? Do you remember? Okay, we're going to go back and I'm going to preach that one then. So let's, no, I'm just kidding. They lost, they lost, they left their first love. They weren't serving people out of love. They didn't love people. And so here in this, this book, they were like hanging on to the truth, but love was just not that important. Here we have the exact opposite going on. They love the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They just love love, right? And they're accepting people. And, 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 we, and, and so Jesus is saying, your love is good, but you're short on truth. You're letting go of the truth. And when you put these two together, Jesus is saying, you can't be good in one and fail in the other. You've got to hang on to both. Love and truth are not mutually exclusive. That's why we're told, speak the truth in love. You've got to hang on to both. You've got to call sin, sin. But at the same time, you've got to love the sinner. You've got to love them through it. They're not mutually exclusive. So what do you say? What do you say to a church that's like that? Well, let's look at verse 16 and see what Jesus said to them. He says this, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
one word, repent. That's his, that's his directive for them. It, his directive is very simple. It's, it's one word, repent. Now, what does the word repent mean? Simple. Repent means a, a, to change direction, right? It means to stop moving in one direction and start moving in the opposite direction. That's what repent means. So he's telling them, you have to stop something, you have to start something, you have to stop justifying your sin, and you need to start exercising your righteousness. Right? If you, wanted, if you would like to, to come join us, this is not a big ploy for the tough mutter, but uh, if you'd like to join us, then there are things we're gonna, you're going to have to stop doing, and there are gonna, things you're going to have to start doing. Right? If you, wanted, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to st- stop justifying your own sin. There's, by the way, there's healing for that. There's forgiveness for that because of what Jesus did. But you're going to have to stop doing those things, and you're going to have to start exercising your faith. You're going to have to start exercising your, your, your righteousness. And it's, it's hard. It's difficult. But there's nothing like it. And the blessings are well worth it. Repent. Repent. You know, this, this is the only directive here that we find. This directive comes with a threat. Look back at the verse. Repent. Or else. We hate those words, don't you? Or else. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. I mean, here you see the severity of this sin, of the church's sin, in God's eyes. It's interesting to me, though, he does say, I will come to you, that's second person plural, right? I will come to you, and I will fight against them. That's third person plural, right? So there's a little change of talk here. What you would almost expect is for him to say, I will, I, I, I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against you. That isn't actually what he says, I will fight against them. Who's the them? The Nicolaitans, the, those who follow the doctrines and... I think the point here is, is to see that we actually have a purpose here. We're not to look at the Nicolaitans of our culture. We're not to look at the, the, the doctrine of Baal or, or of Balaam in our culture. We're not to look at those people and just pretend like everything's good. We're actually here for a purpose to reach them. Because right now, what are they? They are objects of God's wrath. And Jesus is coming. And we have a job to do. To give them the good truth, the message of the truth of the gospel, that they be- can become adopted children of the family of God. And you know what? They don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. It's by the grace of God that He extends that as an invitation. And how can we not share that with the world? And you know what? When we try to pretend that we are the world, they don't see a difference. And we can't share the gospel to them. Why would they need us? We're no different than them. In, in Corinth, well, why, why do they need to be saved from their sins when the, the members of the church in Corinth, their, their immorality is just as bad as theirs? Did you see a problem with that? And we see the, the, the severity of this. We, that Christ is saying, wrath is coming. There's a justice side of God and there's a mercy side of God and they go together. That mercy is extended if we're willing to, to receive it. But don't think for a moment that that means that wrath isn't coming. That punishment for sin isn't coming. As always, he ends the, 
the, uh, the letter with the discernment of the reader and the depiction of the consequences. And they usually go together. Sometimes they're even flip-flopped as uh, Pastor Tim will um, be teaching or preaching next week. And I, I think it's even flip-flopped last week. But it always has, includes both of those things. He who has an ear, as it says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches as well as to him who overcomes. Uh, in that he who has an ear, just a reminder, he's saying, word to the wise, listen up. If you've got an ear to listen to this, listen to this. And then here's the depiction of the consequences. Look what he says in the second half of verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. I, the first time I read this in, you know, in preparation for, for this message, I thought, uh-oh, I got a lot of studying to do. <laughs> Trying to figure out what all that means. Here's what, it, here's what, here's what I came up with. The depiction of the consequences are three things. Number one, he says that they're going to have hidden manna. Now this is a reference to Israel's wandering in the desert, right? If you go all the way back into the Old Testament and into the book of Numbers, they're wandering in the desert. They don't have, um, uh, they don't have food in the desert. And so God provides manna, right? He provides manna for them, which is something from the sky, in Hebrew, the word manna means, what is this? Right? So they don't know what it is. It's just, what is this? It's falling from the sky, and, but it's enough for them to eat. And God is supernaturally providing for them. Um, it's, he also calls it hidden manna. So that, it, again, it's, a, it's secret in that sense of, oh, they don't know what it is. Right? But somehow, God miraculously provided what they needed. Um, and so I think the idea here is that God will provide supernatural sustenance that goes even beyond our own description. In other words, there are going to be ways in which God is going to bless us that we will never, we wouldn't even be able to explain it at the time, right? And He's got these blessings of hidden manna for us. You know, sometimes I've seen that in our own lives when, when, uh, when. God puts us into a tough situation. He allows us to be in a tough situation. And then he pulls through at the last second with something awesome, right? And we just see how God does that. I think that's what he's talking about here. The second thing is he says that he'll give a white stone. Give us a white stone. There are various theories. Uh, I found three that is my studies that I, f I thought were, uh, were all credible in, in some sense or another. Um, one is, would be the idea that this could be a type of consolation or a consolation prize. Let me explain that. There's, uh, in, in the culture there, there was what was called a tesseron. A tesseron is a stone that was given to those who would participate uh, in, uh, in the pagan temples, and um, they would receive a white, well, not always white. It was a, they would receive a stone, and that was actually kind of like a fortune cookie, because a lot of the the temples, they would cook the, the, the food, and then they would give you this little consolation, and it would be, usually have some kind of a fortune, like a, kind of like a fortune cookie, on a stone. Uh, so they think the idea behind this, if that's what he's referring to by this white stone, is that whatever you lose by not participating in the pagan activities, God is going to make up in abundance in a different way. In other words, oh, reminding them that, what do you get for going to the pagan temples? You get a white stone. Well, I'm going to give you a but this white stone is special. It's not going to have, you know, some fortune on it. It's going to have something. It's going to have something that's of value, right? And so, what I find, honestly, how many of you actually read the fortunes in your fortune cookies? Anyone? 
doing a lot of Chinese food talking today. Sorry about that. I don't, right? I mean, they're all Joel Osteen quotes, I think, but um, it's, they're just, I just won't find them relevant, right? I don't find them that relevant to me, um, and, uh, and they don't mean anything. But here we have a right stone with something that's going to have some, some meaning to it. Um, another possibility is, is that um, it could refer to having a clean record because there was, and this was a white stone in the, in the, in the day, what's called an acquittal stone. And so jury members were given stones. And so when they would actually hear a case out and it's time for the verdict, if they would throw a white stone in the bag, that was their way of saying that the person, they, they saw that the person is innocent or regarding that person as innocent, and so the person would be acquitted. So it would be an acquittal stone. So the idea behind that is that whatever sins you may have committed in the past will not be held against you. And I think that's important. If, if, that's, the, if that's what he's going after, I think that's an important concept to have in mind because he's talking about the judgment towards sin and, and immorality. And the problem that he's dealing with isn't that people had a history of, of sexual immorality. It's the problem is that they were putting their stamp of approval on it. See, if you have a history of sexual immorality, that can be forgiven. Amen? You know, I'm, in a room this size, I'm sure there's all sorts of, 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 of things that you don't want to bring back to your mind of the past, right? God forgave that, and there are no second-class Christians. Your sins, anyone's sins, are just as forgiven as anyone else's because the power of the blood on the cross is, is ultimate. Amen? And so we don't hold anything, anything in the past, any forgiven sin, we don't hold that against anybody. Amen? Why? Because Jesus holds, holds nothing against me, and I've offended him many times in many ways. He's forgiven me. Praise the Lord. Right? And so I think, it's, I think that is an important thing. And so it could be that, that the, white, the whiteness of this stone could be that I'm going to give you the acquittal. You, you are going to receive the acquittal stone. Awesome. A third possibility for this is, uh, I just call it the crown uh, because there was a stone called a victor's stone. And, uh, and so they would be given uh, uh, a stone in the form of a, um, almost like, uh, like we would have a trophy, right? So, so there's a victor's, you know, the victor's crown. The basic idea behind that is if you repent, then one day you'll receive the victor's crown. And when I look at this and I see this idea of this white stone, I really, and I have to be completely honest, I can't tell you which of these three it is. So some might say it's one, some might say it's another. It might be a combination of all three. I don't think that's the point. Um, I think that in any case, the blessing is going to be worth it. And I think there's a sense in which we're not even going to understand it now. Does that make sense? There, there are things that Jesus is going to give us there, there are blessings that we're going to receive. There's going to be hidden manna that we experience in life that, that you can't completely put into words right here for us to understand. The third thing that he says he, he'll do, and it's connected to the white stone, is on that stone he would give us a new name. Now, some believe that it's a new name uh, for God, so there would be some name for God, but some say it's a new name for us. Um, I don't think that that's a divisive issue. You can you can disagree with me. I think that it's a new name for us for several reasons. If God had a new name for every believer, that's a lot of names, right? Uh, but I do think that in the context here, what we see historically in Scripture is that there is something about God changing somebody's name that is important, right? There's this idea um, um, of when God gives a new name, there's this idea of, of destiny like when our parents name us, there's a hope, there's a, a desire um, 
and especially in that day when a parent named somebody, there was a, a desire to make sure that that name meant something. Now today in our culture, sometimes that's true for some families. For other families, it's just more the sound. If the name sounds good together, right? Um, but, but back then, the, the idea of giving someone a name, the idea was that the name should mean something. For my parents, that still did. So my name is David Matthew, right? David means beloved. Matthew means gift of God. So the, the idea is that I was a beloved gift from God. So I like that, yeah? Yeah, beloved gift from God. That, that's cool. I, can, I like that. Um, and, and, and I appreciate that. But it's a temporary thing. Uh, the idea here is that when, you know, so when God changes a name, it's because he sees, he sees a lot further down the road than our parents do. He sees our potential. He sees it all. And, and uh, no offense to my parents, but David Matthew is my temporary name, I believe. And I believe that God has a name for me that's picked out. And I'll get to find out what that is and see what it is that God has designed for me in eternity. That's kind of cool when you think about that. I believe that that's what this is, is saying. You know, bottom line, I think, uh, is if I, I follow the path of overlooking sin under the guise of grace, then I'll never, I, I'll never see the potential for what God has intended for me from the beginning. And, and you, you can sit on the couch and, and, and drink Dr. Pepper and eat powdered donuts. And, and um, by the way, those are great gift ideas for um, Pastor Appreciation Month. So, you know, that's... A, <laughs> <laughs> but you could do that, but then you miss out on the potential of what you could do and the joy from, the, from what you could do. I think that's what it is, too. There, there is so much in eternity that we just don't even grasp. Are you getting to sense that by reading the book of Revelation? Like we, we just got this little blip of, of what's going on, but there's so much more going on than what we can even fathom. In fact, I like the way Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians Two, he wrote this. He said, but as it is written, can you advance it for me? I think, I don't know if this just died. There it is. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You know, I don't know what eternity is going to be like. I can give you a few descriptions because the Bible gives us a few descriptions. But those are few descriptions. But the, most of it is telling us it's beyond description. I'll tell you one thing, it's not. It's not floating on a cloud, playing a harp. Right, like you see in all the cartoons. God has something for us. He's got something going on. And I think that he's got all this hidden stuff, a secret name that no one else knows about because he's got this intimate relationship with us and he's got plans for every single one of us, plans that go far beyond what we're even thinking about on this, in this small little worldview that we have. And he's like, I've got way more for you. But you're going to miss out. If you start pulling from the religions, you start pulling from the pagan religions, you start letting sin into the church, and you start letting that, then you're going to miss out on all that stuff. You're going to miss out on it. You've got to stop. You've got to repent. You've got to stop justifying your sin and start exercising your righteousness. That's the call today. That when, I, when it comes to the invitation, in just a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And that's really what it is, I, is to ask you to say, I'm going to stop justifying my own sins, whatever it might be. Because that's what we do. We justify our own sins, right? 
It's real bad when someone else does it. When we do it, there's always a good reason behind it, right? We're going to stop doing that, and we're going to start exercising righteousness. There might be some in here who've never accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. If, if that's you today, I want to make sure you have an opportunity to make that right with God. Come talk to me. Come, come straight up to me, or you can go right to the back. We have men and women that will show you from God's Word how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. But there's others that could be in here, and you, and you say, you know what? There's just been sins that I've been allowing in my life, and I'm justifying them. And maybe it's not the same ones. Maybe it's not participation in, in anything pagan. Uh, and maybe it's not sexual immorality, but it's the same doctrine. I'm allowing certain sins in my life that I need to come forward and I need to confess this. I need to repent so that I can go out of here today and start exercising my righteousness. I'm going to give you that opportunity in just a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would make us uncomfortable. I know that's an odd thing to pray, but Lord, I pray that we would not be comfortable in our sin. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be working right now in the hearts of some that are right in this room right now. Maybe even bringing sins to our own mind. That we have been justified. But Lord, may you remind us that we're coming forward to a place of grace. Where we don't want to abuse that grace, but we know that that grace is needed. That there's no sin we've done that you can't cover you haven't already covered through the blood of your son on the cross. So Lord, I pray that if there's any in here that have never experienced that grace, they would do that today and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would put that burden in our hearts to stop justifying sin, start exercising our righteousness. Don't let us be comfortable in our own seats. Don't let us be comfortable in our own sin. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.